Hey, it's Daniel Bashir again, back with another episode of The Gradient Podcast, where we interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. Today is going to be a very fun episode. I'm speaking to Nathan Benesh. Nathan is founder and general partner at Air Street Capital, a venture capital firm focused on investing in AI-first technology and life sciences companies. Nathan runs a number of communities focused on AI, including the Research and Applied AI Summit, and he also created Spinout.fyi to improve the creation of university spinouts. Together with investor Ian Hogarth, Nathan co-authors the State of AI report. I think that both spinout.fyi and the State of AI report are just incredible services to the community. From his time in academia and investing, Nathan has a lot of interesting perspectives on the differences between the European and American startup ecosystems and on the field more broadly. We got to discuss a number of fascinating topics from this year's State of AI report, including the section on AI safety and his thoughts on recent developments in semiconductor investment and restrictions. If you're listening to this episode and aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, you won't get notifications when we release You can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other platform. You can also follow us directly on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. And now, without further ado, Nathan Benesh. Where I'll start, I know that you have a pretty interesting collection of interests that sort of include AI, life sciences, investing. And I would love to hear how all that came together for you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I've been, I've been interested in like machine learning for a while, like ever since probably my undergrad internships at the Whitehead Institute in Kendall Square in Boston, which was one of the centers of the whole genome sequencing project. And, um, you know, out of that came, you know, a trove of genomic data and when I was an undergrad, we had even more like imaging uh, data and various modalities that were coming out. And in those summers that I spent there, we used bioinformatics as a way of combing through all these modalities and trying to make sense of them for the purposes of cancer research. And then, uh, and then since undergrad and grad school, where I continued much of the similar line of work and research, I then moved more into AI applied to software companies and spent you know, a couple of years doing this. And then now I've kind of come back and uh, started investing a bunch into tech bio. So yeah, it's been kind of like a, a 10 year run or so interfacing with machine learning uh, and related technologies in different disciplines along the way. Sure. One, one thing I wanted to ask about, you just mentioned the phrase tech bio, and I've heard that bandied about a bit. I know that biotech was what a lot of companies in that domain used to be called, and some people have chosen to flip that around. So I'm curious what your perspective is on these companies, the role of technology, biological expertise, um, just kind of coming in with that name. 
So I think the, the refresh in the name is, um, you know, driven by a few factors. Um, I think number one is that the founder phenotype that starts a tech bio company is quite different from one that starts a biotech company. The most meaningful phenotypic difference is that they lead with engineering and software as a way of addressing problems in biology and really see technology and software development as, as a value creator, not as a depreciating asset. And they, they really like kind of religiously and painfully go through all the different steps of the value chain that they're addressing, say for drug discovery, for example, and, and consider, you know, what problems or what can I rebuild with a software first approach? The second thing is that they generally address a variety of different diseases, a variety of different drugs and, and targets within the same company, which is quite different to traditional biotech, which is largely predicated on many years of academic research on one specific target or molecule and a company is built around that science and its goal is to prosecute that science and you know form it into a drug and therefore has a lot of binary risk sure. so in a way that tech bio companies have a portfolio of risk and i think like almost one of the the other more qualitative like defining factors is that of founder led biotech which is uh, kind of emulating obviously what we come to uh, take for granted in software which is founders own and run their companies and investors want them to be owning and running their companies for the long term. And there's evidence that the longer you do that, the more success you have. Whereas in biotech, that's not, that's not the status quo. Uh, you know, the status quo is largely installing experience management to go run and build companies around science. Uh, and these individuals are largely cash comp, not equity comp, which I think just changes the kind of flavor of the company you build. So tech bio businesses are borrowing and building on top of the playbooks and software to change that a bit. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's kind of like, what is the the fundamental framework in which this company is conceptualized, build everything from the actual assets of the company, how technology is viewed, to the way people are installed, compensated, everything pretty much, which is, yeah. that's an interesting difference. Yeah. And I think we'll see, we'll see much more happen in this field because um, it's kind of this crazy reality that many pharma companies today will want to build and own um, a lot of the solutions to their problems, which is quite different to technology where you want to use open source and you want to use SaaS as much as possible so that you don't have to own like a massive suite of problems so that you can provide customer value. So I think this like modularization um, of, of the value chain will happen in biotech over, uh, you know, a number of years. It's just that maybe like philosophically, it's not, it's not taken as the, as the right, as the right path. And I think, you know, long-term that has really good implications for reproducibility, for capital efficiency, and for the size of companies that you can create. Yeah, I, I am curious what that modularization will end up looking like. I mean, it levied such a huge impact on just the pure technology ecosystem. Having gotten into your particular interest in tech bio a little bit, I do want to back up to, it sounds like you had a fair amount of research experience and undergrad, grad school exposure to a lot of the technical areas. So I am very curious what drove you towards the route of investing and starting Airstreet Capital as opposed to spending more time in the technical realm? 
So my, my main motivation um, going down the VC route is, is basically because like I saw such a large surface area of problem spaces that machine learning could be useful for in terms of company building and a kind of poorly served like entrepreneurial marketplace for founders who come from ML backgrounds or want to use ML as like the main value creator in their product. So that, that mismatch kind of made me feel like you know, over the years, getting to a position where I could sort of write write my own story and 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 help founders write theirs by providing a kind of product and and you know like a, basically a venture from this like tailor built for people who are in the machine learnings field uh, would be like the most exciting endeavor I could uh, I could work on, uh, and I think that's like certainly been been panning out as you know now very much this summer seems to have been like yet another like hot summer for AI. And um, I kind of don't see those hot summers going away anytime soon. And, and like having the perspective of seeing what's happened over the last 10 years or so, like certainly helps me keep like a, a level head, I think, and not get too distracted from, you know, some of the hype, which, you know, in a, in a way is like healthy because it attracts attention and, and people into the field. But I think it, it long-term like pays as a founder, as an investor to like, be as close to the subject matter as possible to help you kind of uh, tune out the noise. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot in what you said there. In one respect, now is definitely the time to be somebody investing into AI, it seems. And at the same time, as you said, we've seen some really interesting shifts in the venture startup ecosystem, so much money flooding in. And then now, at least in the United States, we're seeing looming considerations of a recession and really battening down the hatches. So it is a very interesting time to either be in the space or be closely following. To what you said, I would love to hear your pitch just about Airstreet Capital in particular and what you see as the unique value proposition. Yeah. So the, yeah, the firm is like purpose built to be investing in what I call like AI first technology and life science um, companies and and be as much the partner of choice at, at the earliest stage as possible. Um, it's really an expression of my interest and like long-term conviction that, you know, machine learning is likely the most powerful positive tech lever you have on progress. What I think are like the main challenges for um, founders in this domain at the early stage is like one, how to, you know, find the most impactful from an, from an economic point of view and from a technological point of view, application of their skills, because if machine learning by default is not dual use, it's multi-use. And, um, and I see a lot of teams at the early stage that have like quite a coarse sort of sculpture, as it were, uh, of like how they're going to make use of machine learning. And then over the journey from pre-seed seed to A and B, that sculpture becomes increasingly refined to the point where they kind of graduate out of this like machine learning category and um, and enter a much more established software domain like we are an enterprise software company for health and safety or we are a you know dev tools company for like developer productivity or something like that and if you want to understand how the product works and why it's defensible we can talk about the machine learning but that's not the that's not the first foot that we take when we're jumping into a customer conversation so a main part of the, of the value prop is like shaping that narrative, shaping the strategy for how do you get out of the esoteric uh, multi-use machine learning domain into the 
very well established software category that everybody can understand, whether that's talent, customers, um, and investors. And then the, the, the second point is around um, team building and hiring. You know, as, as you know, and your listeners will know, like the machine learning world is small, like uh, generally has like a high bar for what they think is high quality and, uh, and who's, who's kind of signal they're willing to trust. So, so I think it's really important to be like almost a core, a core contributor to this overall ecosystem that we can contribute, we can consider to be an open source project. And so, you know, entrepreneurs are building companies in this project, open source folks are building tools and investors are providing capital and guidance and coaching to, to make sure the whole space evolves. So I want to be a core contributor to this overall project. And, uh, and by doing that, I think it makes hiring and team building a lot better because I want to be like this impartial kind of rooter. I oftentimes have conversations with grad students or folks leaving companies who want to find their next thing. And I'm fairly impartial with saying, you know, these are some of the cool projects that I've invested in. These are some of the cool projects I didn't and I wish I did. Uh, and then these are some people who are, you know, interested and in, in a similar spot to you and starting their own company. And, and, uh, and, I'll, pl- and I'll play that, that, that card every day, you know, trying to be long-term greedy, not short-term greedy. The boomerang swings back at some point. And, uh, and I think there's nothing like more fulfilling than helping you know, ambitious people either find something to work on, find peers to work with. So I, I enjoy that a lot. Yeah. And I can see how the ML space is a particularly good one to deploy that interest just because there are so many different applications of the technology. It can be used for good and bad, but just in terms of making the world a better place through company building and entrepreneurship. One thing too that you were mentioning earlier highlighted an interesting balance to me just in terms of, in the sense of building a company, especially for operators, for entrepreneurs who might be deeply technical, you want to create technologies and market it in a way that's understandable to lots of people. And as you're saying, perhaps bring it into a more mature, understandable space. But at the same time, you are also an ML person. And so what you're looking to do is maintain this fidelity to being taken seriously by your own academic peers and people who are more deeply ensconced within the space. I'm curious how you look at that balance as somebody who is supporting and investing in companies. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like a perfect framing. Um, and I think is why I really believe in specialism over generalism in this domain, because as we see, it's it's such a fast moving space where some things can really work and some things can be a red herring. You have to at the same time have the credibility of, you know, scientists and academics and people doing research in big companies because they're going to oftentimes be producing concepts or ideas or open source packages that'll be really useful for you. But at the same time, you have to be realistic that you want to be building like an IPO grid company and that requires interfacing with another domain. So, um, I mean, in one way, I think, this comes kind of uh, intrinsic to me. This is just like what I what I like doing. Um, you know, I spend time, as, as you said, in, in academia, writing papers, doing thesis projects, and I get a lot of uh, like intellectual energy by engaging with domain experts and 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 people writing papers to figure out like where might where might this go next? What tools might be right you know to build products today? But then I also think uh, like that other side of almost being like a, an API into into like real products and enterprise and, and kind of making sure that 
you know, enterprise and customers buy products because they're real, because they add value, not because they have machine learning on the sticker. So yeah, I navigate that, that kind of balance every day. And, and, you know, projects like the state of the AI report, which we've been doing for five years, this newsletter that I've been writing for like five or six years, and then some of the other projects like the spin out project around university entrepreneurship are all just like ways that I can keep engaged with the, with sort of like the mothership or like the homeland as it, as it were, and then, uh, and keep, you know, keep afresh and you know, keep learning. Yeah. Let's actually segue over to your work on spin outs a little bit. And as an intermediate question, I do want to get perhaps your broader take on the European startup ecosystem, which I find really interesting just because we have this conglomeration of some incredible AI talent. We've got DeepMind based in London, Hugging Face based in Paris. We also have a pretty interesting regulatory environment that is starting to arise. And I'd just love to hear about your experience with the particularities of that ecosystem as an investor and what your perspective on it is. Yeah, I mean, there was um, a lot of academic work ongoing for, I don't know, like the dawn of the space, basically, in Europe. And um, you can see a lot of the most published academics that are now based in the U.S. have spent the vast majority of their early career in Europe. We saw it certainly an inflection point of investing in company building around the time that DeepMind was acquired, because I think that activated a lot of um, latent potential, um, both on the entrepreneurial side and, and sort of academic side. But by default, a lot of European companies will think global from day one because, you know, it is a continent, but it is like, um, you know, a federation of many different cultures and, and countries with different reg environments. So you do really have to think global from day one. And the, and the UK, in that sense, is, has an advantage because of, uh, you know, capital stores, academic institutions and, and no language barrier with the U.S., and then generally, as these companies grow, they keep their engineering and product uh, largely in Europe and, uh, and then grow their go-to-market motion in the U.S., where, you know, that ecosystem still benefits from many more experienced operators who've gone through the, I don't know, call it 10 million annual recurring revenue to 100 million plus and, you know, sort of like VP and, um, and director level candidates, which eventually we'll, we'll get in Europe, but it's a, it's a younger ecosystem. And, uh, and as you said, there's a lot of really exciting machine learning based companies in Europe nowadays, whether it's the ones you cited or Dark Trace and cybersecurity in the UK or Exientia doing drug discovery or Tractable working on insurance and, and finance and kind of the list goes on and stability being one of the more, uh, you know, exciting projects that happened this summer, which is technically based in London. Let's dive into a, a specific part of this ecosystem that I know you're incredibly passionate about and that you've started to mention in this conversation already, and that's about spinouts. Can you just give a brief introduction to what a spinout is, why you're so passionate about the issue, and, and what the problem you see is? So, um, yeah, the vast majority of companies get formed by, you know, individuals who've graduated from academic institutions and perhaps worked a couple of years or dropped out and founded them. These are generally just called referred to as startups. The difference with spinouts is that they're explicitly formed out of inventions generated within the academic environment. And in most cases, they have a desire to exploit those inventions in the commercial context and therefore need to license their inventions to gain access to them in order to commercialize. 
And um, yeah, the big difference between spin-outs and startups is, is that startups have access to the entire marketplace of investors versus spin-outs, which have uh, only one exit route, which is through, generally speaking, a technology transfer office, which governs the licensing process for academics to gain access to their inventions. And um, the, the other point worth mentioning is that uh, you know, a lot of like great companies in AI or in databases or data analytics, et cetera, you know, derive from university environments, whether it's the professors or postdocs. In the U.S., you have these veneered programs uh, like AMP Lab and Rise Lab uh, at Berkeley or Dawn at Stanford that have created, you know, Databricks, Nova, uh, AnyScale, uh, et cetera. And these are like household names basically and were created out of this organized research agenda that interfaces with industry that seeks to generate new knowledge that's relevant for today's real world problems but that is also very open and flexible to um, enabling those inventors to you know package those solutions into enterprise grade solutions so i think this is very very important and um and given that we're now also in a world that that basically sees nation states wanting to have access to key technologies, um, you know, which is sometimes called technological sovereignty, um, for example, having the ability to manufacture and design your own chips, to you know, design and manufacture your own medicines, to have the ability to have access to energy and, and resources. I think a lot of these um, domains will rely on inventions in university environments. And so I think it's um, especially topical nowadays to sort of reevaluate whether that engine of translating large R&D investments into economic value for society is working or not working. And, and the TLDR is I think it's working okay in some environments and very poorly in others. Yeah. The technological sovereignty point you mentioned is really fascinating to me and something we might want to return to later, but let's just dig a little bit more into the specific problems. So you talked about technological transfer offices, and in some of your writings about this issue, you've mentioned that there's less of an incentive for investors to put their money into spinouts because founders don't own enough of the company. And you would also imagine that from the founder perspective, it's like, well, you just don't have as much equity. And so that becomes a big issue. And I think you mentioned to what you just said about it working well in some places, there are universities like I think you called out Cambridge as having a good ecosystem for this sort of startup. But that is absolutely not the place in most um, universities. Could you maybe spend just a little bit more time detailing that problem and then tell us a bit about spinout.fyi that you've created in order to help towards rectifying it. So at the moment, I think there's a lot of frustration behind closed doors amongst founders who feel that they uh, are underserved with regards to um, their process of forming a company out of their university inventions. Um, the reason for that is um, is fewfold, and we actually have now uh, crowdsourced data on almost 200 individual deal terms from over 70 university institutions around the world. And uh, what we see is that 
number one, almost like two thirds of companies spin outs take over six months to get a deal done. Some deals actually take nine months, some take a year, some unfortunately take two years. So you can cast that against the speed with which companies can raise a safe nowadays, which is oftentimes, you know, a matter of weeks and then they can get going. Um, you know, anything that's like over six months is probably uh, just a complete like company killer because either your technologies become open source and somebody else runs with it or your co-founders get recruited by any number of startups or big companies um, or you just become so jaded that you just give up. The second thing is that you allude to these equity take rates, which largely are a reflection of how much the university feels that it has a uh, prior investment in the space that the company is now uh, built on. So for example, in biotech, generally the equity take rates are higher because there's lab infrastructure, there's expensive equipment, there's long development times, lots of grants funneled into these projects. And so uh, the feeling of what's the fair value capture to compensate for all of that prior investment is, is higher than in, a, in like an AI startup or something like this, where, um, you know, the field moves so fast, you just need to pay for compute costs. And, and maybe there wasn't years and years of work involved in producing the IP. But, uh, but in general, like in, in the UK, you see take rates of on average of 25% from the get-go. In the US, you see kind of 7 to 10, something along that order. And in continental Europe, you see also kind of 10-ish which is largely dragged down on average by certain countries like in the Nordics, which give automatic right over IP to the inventors. So by default, they take zero. But, uh, but even these average numbers obfuscate a lot of heterogeneity in the data. Uh, you know, deals can go anything from zero to 70%. And, and generally, there's more correlation between the number of deals that a university will do and the take rates they take. So... Universities that do a lot of deals understand that um, you need to be an enabler, not a hindrance. You can't pick stocks, basically. And uh, having happy customers is a long-term uh, better outcome than an unhappy customer that you've got a lot of equity in. And the U.S., I think they, they really get this a lot because it's driven. University ecosystems are you know, driven and reliant on alumni networks and donations. And, and, uh, and in Europe, we don't really have that. So those are, those are some of the, um, some of the kind of key findings as to why the, the process is not good. And the kind of end state of this is that we probably see more quote unquote sneak outs than spin outs, which are basically <laughs> spin outs that never agree to deal because they, you know, threw their technology over the proverbial fence and got it in the open source domain and didn't agree a deal or they quit and started the company or they just didn't tell anybody. And so, so th th that's what happens more, more often than not. Maybe like a final stat that I'll throw in there is, is in the UK, um, it's only like 4% of private AI companies are spin-outs. And given how much universities contribute to the development of AI and papers and open source, that seems remarkably low. In Europe in general, you know, a couple of months ago, we had call it, you know, 125 unicorns, like billion dollar companies. And of that list, only four were spin outs. That also feels remarkably low. Yeah, that does feel very low. One thing you mentioned 
that I wanted to ask about was you called out the Nordics as having a 0% take rate. And I'm curious if at least you have any data on whether that has manifested in more spin outs within their ecosystem. There hasn't been too much of a correlation yet. I think in addition to policy, culture plays a big thing too. And uh, I'm not aware of there being like an intrinsic uh, cultural drive for academics to form companies like there is in certain, you know, UK or US universities. But what has correlated is that generally um, inventors there are pretty happy with their overall package. So there's, if you look at the NPS score, which is, you know, net promoter score, which is such a foreign uh, artifact for technology transfer offices, where if you ask them about, do you ask your customers if they're happy with their product? A lot of them will be like, why, like, what do you mean? If you do ask, like the people in the Nordics are generally pretty happy, but, and also in Switzerland, uh, folks are pretty happy because, you know, ETH and EPFL, which are the two kind of leading technical institutions there, have a pretty well set up program, which is, you know, on, on balance, people think is fair. Sure. With regards to ways for us to improve the situation, you did propose a couple of ideas in your writings and I'd love to know what you think the most direct path towards solving this issue is, but I imagine there's also some entrenched interests on the other side that probably make things a little bit more difficult. I think standards are useful. You know, most other industries where standards were implemented, the the downstream effects have been positive, you know, whether that's in, in telecoms or the internet uh, or in pharma or, you know, kind of name the industry. And we've seen a lot of, I think, positive implications to there being standardizations around seed funding. So I, I do think that standards in tech transfer will be net positive. There's generally an argument against that because you know, most TTOs feel that every opportunity is slightly different. When that, that might be true, but I think having predict, predictability, um, visibility into what deal an inventor might get will actually help the fundraising environment because there's almost nothing that investors like less than a lack of predictability. So I kind of advocate for some standardization in terms. I think that having standardization will actually yield better outcomes. I think government actually has quite a big role to play because a lot of institutions are funded through the government. And, um, and therefore, the government has leverage in this debate. And there has to be some form of policy intervention if there are no market pressures that can, that can result in policy change. So whether that's, you know, pinning a certain equity rate or pinning a certain royalty rate, et cetera, I think some of those numbers can be, can be debated. But I do think there is some form of line, which is broadly speaking, going to be fair. I also think that there should be some standardization around how long it takes for a deal to get done. So, you know, a certain number of months should be kind of the the line in the sand as well. And uh, perhaps lastly, I think there could be a room for some novel funding source, which could be also gov-derived, which would enable inventors to test out some of their ideas in kind of a neutral space such that they have more more white space to agree the deal that would be in the best interest of the company and the inventors 
if what their experiments show is sort of worthy of starting a company. Yeah, those those all seem like really reasonable solutions to what's going on. Now that we've spent a little bit of time on on spinouts, I do want to segue into one of the major topics, the State of AI report. You and Ian Hogarth, another investor, write this report together. Can you tell me how you two started collaborating and how the report itself came to be? So five years or so uh, ago, um, we, uh, Ian Hogarth and I met and we felt like there was a ton of progress and, um, and papers and companies coming out in machine learning. And, you know, we were avid readers of Mary Meeker's State of the Internet Report, which I think captured so much of the essence of progress in technology. It was like this annual thing that a lot of people looked forward to. And um, we also felt that, you know, by virtue of our position as investors, we sort of had this ability to interface like, every week, basically, with, you know, early stage founders, growth stage founders, people in public markets, government, academics. Um, and so it gave us like a very broad overview of the field and given how quickly things were changing and there wasn't like a canonical, you know, open source, um, you know, annual record of where the state is, of the field is at. We felt like that would be a pretty, uh, you know, neat and useful contribution that we could make uh, to the field. So that was like really, really the, the genesis. It certainly like evolved a bit over the years. And uh, it's been like a pretty amazing uh, sort of yardstick to put in the ground every year. And um, we're yet to do like a five-year retrospective on what's 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 changed, what's cool, what's not cool, what could be tried again because of new technology inflection points. But uh, but yeah, it's given us a pretty awesome overview of the field. And, and it's been nice to, to see the communities reacted positively to it. Absolutely. It- is a really wonderful service to all of us who read it. And I do think you do a fantastic job of encapsulating some of the trends. I also love that you've been making predictions every year and looking back on those. In fact, I did want to dig a bit into some of your 2021 predictions and just capture your thoughts on the hits and misses there. I'd love to hear which ones of the Predictions were particularly interesting to you. I noticed that you seemed pretty bullish on Anthropic and building a GPT level model, also on JAX as an ML framework. And I wonder if any of the misses you had, I think you were four for eight on hits and misses, whether any makes sense in retrospect or whether there are any things you missed that still surprise you or that you're maybe still thinking over? Yeah. So, yeah, first of all, we put predictions in there because uh, I think it's, it's like a fun exercise. And in the dark days of of making slides over the summer when everyone's at the beach, you kind of have to have some fun with this stuff. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I think quickly, uh, yeah, we predicted that Anthropic would, would publish something on the level of GPT or, or AlphaGo, et cetera. Um, I mean, I think in retrospect, perhaps it makes sense they haven't because like they're very focused on safety and alignment and perhaps like less so on capabilities. And, you know, the models that we that we said they would uh, approximate in their work are very firmly in the capabilities stance or, or, or sector rather. It's perhaps not surprising. Um, we got the ASML market prediction wrong, but to be fair, like the entire market collapsed. So 
I think we would have probably been uh, on a run for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we predicted a bunch of consolidation would happen in the AI semiconductor space. Uh, yeah. With one of the kind of major names perhaps folding into uh, into an incumbent. Yeah, sort of surprised that it hasn't happened yet. I mean, we substantiated that take with a couple slides in this year's report that, you know, dived into all the open source AI research and looked at which hardware substrates were being used to train models. And we just showed how far ahead NVIDIA is from everybody else, including Google, which I think many in the field kind of natively feel and see, but there was no numbers to, to attach to that feeling. So that coupled with the economic environment would probably mean that when we do this section again next next year in 12 months, I wouldn't be surprised if you would see this consolidation happen. So maybe a year late. And then on the JAX, yeah, that's that's been interesting too, because you know, the last like year or two, we've really felt and heard from the community that JAX has become one of these um, de facto frameworks for engineers that are especially looking at new architectures. And it gave us, I think, a lot of enthusiasm because if a framework that's useful for doing quite low level math and uh, architecture development is taking off, then that means that there is still a lot of innovation left in modeling. And it's not just only about throwing data at a model and scaling up compute. So I don't know if this is gonna inflect in the next year or so. I think it's already merged or will merge with TensorFlow. So perhaps perhaps it might it might happen. And then we did a bit of like a predictions, uh, like rewinded uh, section to just show that like some things we were a few years too early. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it, it takes a few years for all these trends to play out. And totally. we are in such a fast moving space that I feel like well, your your predictions show that even looking at what's going to happen one year from now, it can be really difficult to make good sets of predictions about what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah, yeah. And even to like the last moment, I think we were making updates to slides because, you know, DeepMind had a nature paper and then, you know, a new like text to video model came out. And so that was under constant review until, until the last minute. Yeah, I... I do want to get your thoughts on the AI semiconductor space. Um, I've been working in this area myself in one of the companies you mentioned for a bit, actually. And I find it just a very interesting area to be inside or to be looking at externally. I think there's so much tie-in with not just the fact that people want to explore different hardware architectures, people want to do ML better, but... You've got aspects like the hardware lottery, how does hardware interface with software? And then you also, of course, have the whole geopolitical situation that begins to inflect. And as somebody watching all of this, I'm curious what trends stick out to you and what you think of the space as a whole. I think the industry was very, um, very bullish and excited about new approaches to chip design, you know, based on the fact that NVIDIA was not really coming from uh, an AI background and and its products were used and almost like magically discovered to be useful. So like what could happen if you redesigned NVIDIA from scratch for AI? But I think the, the reality was that the space moved so fast such that, you know, semiconductors of yesteryear had a bit more 
leeway and like predictability to the kinds of workloads they were being designed for and the kinds of frameworks that would run um, on them that basically AI was not granted. So, you know, you can still recall a couple of years ago, TensorFlow was by far the most popular. And then at some point that changed drastically to PyTorch and that had some implications for hardware developers themselves because they had to rewrite a bunch of libraries. And that's pretty painful to constantly be playing catch up with the software side of things. Then, you know, these companies are generally competing with an incumbent that behaves like a startup and that's certainly run by basically still a startup CEO with just, you know, immense drive and ability to execute an ingenuity. And, uh, and so it's been, it's been a tough run. I think what could have, what could have maybe helped, and I think some companies are doing better than, than others, are those that have buy-in from the government. Because, you know, back in like the 60s, when there were new generations of semiconductors, you know, the U.S. government was basically a backstop and bought all of them um, to basically, you know, bootstrap this market into reality. And, um, you know, some AI chip vendors will sell to government, whether that's for DOD or research or, or national labs or whatnot, and, and others won't. And I think perhaps like a similar behavior from government would have helped you know, reduce the reliance on a single vendor. So, you know, I think history teaches us like interesting lessons that especially nowadays in this like sovereignty driven world um, would have certainly been uh, been welcome and useful. Yeah, I do want to chat a little bit about the geopolitical tensions here, but perhaps we can get to that as part of a different section. What I do want to spend some time on is the fact that you dedicated a section to AI safety in this edition. I know that you'd spent some time on it earlier and the growth in this space, the fact that we now have multiple different startups receiving a pretty non-trivial amount of investment, at least compared to what there was before, is interesting. And I wonder what you think people should be watching for in this space and why you think it's valuable just as a field itself and as one to follow. Yeah, last year we made um, we made a stab at enumerating the number of individuals that worked explicitly on AI alignment. So it's just the, the question of if we develop a super intelligent system, how do we make sure that it's aligned with our preferences? Um, and we did that by asking and, and, and enumerating the number of authors on key papers, the major AI labs. Mm. And we found that like, give or take, there's probably fewer last year than a hundred people at major AI labs working on alignment. Now, like we didn't necessarily arbitrate as to whether that's uh, too low or too high or whatnot, but just making that figure public, I think, makes um, some people think about whether it is too high or too low, or given the, you know, the amount of money that's invested in capabilities. So I think that shook the tree a little bit because people weren't necessarily aware of this. And then the last like 12 months or so, we've seen certainly more people getting into the safety domain, um, in part because of the rise of you know, very, very large models that show pretty interesting uh, emergent capabilities. And so, you know, some PhD students have moved into this. Like, as you mentioned, there's been some pretty serious labs getting started and funded by, you know, quite non-traditional sources, um, you know, whether that's open philanthropy or, um, you know, Sam Bagman-Fried or other individuals part of uh, effective altruism. 
and yet like still the, the sum of all that funding is still you know infinitesimal compared to the funding for companies that pursue capabilities or purely capabilities or some of these um, you know large research labs so nowadays we probably estimate that there's maybe like 300 or so people working on alignment um, but uh, they're given their even there's some form of non-zero chance, like I have no idea what that non-zero figure is or what the timeline is. Um, I do think that it's, you know, perfectly warranted and probably like more than warranted important to have, you know, a segment of individuals working on alignment because it's sort of like akin to kind of working on nuclear technology and fission fusion reactions without figuring out uh, how to control them. Yeah. I find this space so interesting because there's a couple of trends I noticed. So one that you mentioned, just 300 people working on alignment, that is not a lot, but it does seem as though the discourse around these questions has entered the mainstream over the past couple of years, whereas before it seemed very much relegated to the sidelines. But also the debates over this stuff seem incredibly heated. I know that there are a lot of people who are very much against the idea of long-termism. And it seems to be, at least in my attempts to reconcile, a bit difficult to get the camps to really engage with one another. I think that there are some interesting attempts. So I believe one researcher, Charlotte Sticks, had an interesting Mm -hmm. paper on like shared ideas between short-termists and long-termists. But I have asked other people this question in the past. So Stuart Russell, for instance, is very much a long-termist. And when I asked him to steel man the other side of the argument, he was like, I just don't think that there is a good argument against long-termism. And Mm -hmm. if you really want to dig into the issue, that maybe gets into your, your presuppositions about what does intelligence mean? Will we actually get to something you might call super intelligence? It sounds like you think that there is at least a warrant. And I think that the argument you're making has to do with this calculus of, well, there's some probability of existential risk, right? And so that justifies us doing something about it. I, I'm curious if you've thought about this further and if you have any more, any more detailed thoughts on the debate overall. I think it's um it's a very like um I guess like fluid fluid research problem, um, such as to define like what is the agenda, what are the experiments, what does success look like, what might be some fruitful paths or not fruitful paths. I, I certainly don't purport to have the answers as to like um which one of these uh directions is useful. But I do think that also studying alignment and safety will be, you know, a very productive sort of input into generally improving capabilities because at the very basic level, safety is around like, how do you make sure these systems don't break and don't break in a way that's bad for the user? And that's just like important full stop for any software system. And so this kind of resilience is is an important like feature to optimize for. So I'm definitely all for that. And alignment is, you know, one extension of this in a slightly different kind of instantiation of the problem. Uh, and then the question is, I, I think like, what's the correct venue to explore some of these problems? Because, you know, we've seen experiments where it's either a collection of individuals that are sort of nonprofit funded 
others which are basically like some form of private company or B Corp. Um, others are, you know, large corporate funded research labs with dedicated teams. Others take the view that everybody does safety and alignment because this is just important in building good systems. Mm-hmm. And then you have academia and then these research collectives. So I don't, I also don't know which one of these is, is the best, but I think what's, what's happening is with the massive scale and pace of open sourcing, we're running an experiment where it's no longer going to be like a small group of individuals in a company that gets to kind of informally legislate over access and use. And instead we're going to have, you know, everybody with a computer who can now contribute. And, uh, and, you know, in one way that's hopefully going to be a positive because, you know, more people who contribute, the more opinions there are and more likelihood we'll get to, you know, the best solution there is. And, you know, people can vote and legislate with their feet as it were. Yeah, the the open source aspect seems very important to that. It's also a trend that you have called out on its own. You were mentioning this earlier, but you called out stability as really attempting this new paradigm and like commercializable open source AI. And we've seen a number of other collectives. I'm I'm curious about what interests you most about this trend of these more decentralized research collectives or companies that are trying to commercialize open source AI? For me, it's that this decentralization almost bucks the trend of, or the dogma of the last couple of years in machine learning, which said that value accrues most to the centralized party. So, you know, basically to win, you need to have all the data, all the compute, all the talent, all the customers under one roof and if you're not under that roof like you can't compete and um, what these collectives have shown is that if you're not part of this like tech elite or you're not in these centralized organizations well it turns out that you know coordination and and like an unlock through availability of compute like can do a lot of you know can achieve a lot and, uh, and, and it turns out that, you know, these collectives can almost run faster than some of the large labs and uh, to, to the point where they precipitate a sort of Wikipedia versus Encarta kind of challenge, which precipitates, again, more, more open sourcing. So it's hard to see that, like, once this game theoretical setup is launched, how you can kind of undo it, how you can unopen source things and still be competitive. So that, that's been the most kind of surprising and interesting element of this. And then perhaps like the second one is that these decentralized collectives almost are absorbing some of the work that used to be done in academia because academia is still largely devoid of, of compute and data and open source collectives are, are, are granted access to these compute systems. And so if that's the case, then academia is stuck in this like odd place. And we can see that in, in a figure we have in the report where we look at, you know, certain large scale AI results and then count the number that were contributed by big tech or by research collectives or by academia and sort of see uh, an increase from, um, from research collectives and sort of a plateauing or a reduction from, from academia. Yeah. And I think that this, accessibility of compute and then the ability to do academic study with it also connects to some of your points earlier about AI safety 
and how the open source nature of things contributes to that. Because if we look at Eleuther AI, for instance, they've done a couple of projects here and there that when I look at them, I think this is something I'd expect to happen in an academic research lab. And if you also just look at their arguments for why they released GPTJ, the idea that it's dangerous to keep something like this behind closed doors where nobody can really do a full rigorous study to try to understand what's going on. I, I find that intersection of let's open source these things, make them more publicly available, and then allow as many people as possible to investigate, understand, look at failure modes of these systems, a, a really interesting uh really interesting conglomeration of trends. Yeah, exactly. I think it's just driving more participation in the field from different domains. And um, and I think that's maybe a segue into like the parts that I'm most interested in, which is like less of the first order effects of, you know, being really good at having text to image, text to video models and being more like, well, if we've sort of made like diffusion as a model architecture really work, and these generation systems really work, then what are, what are like the less obvious domains in which we can create a lot of economic value and a lot of like user value? Um, so that's led me into domains like uh, chemistry and small molecule design and biology around like designing genome editors and, and being much more intentional with, you know, finding and, and targeting uh, disease pathways and, you know, perhaps even like materials in a couple of years. So, so yeah, I think it's gonna it's gonna unlock a lot of creativity and and and, uh, and positive development in the in the domain. Yeah, that's a very interesting sample case of how we see a first order use case, the immediate like text to image, text to video, driving some of these really fundamental advances. And then to what you're saying, there are just some fascinating downstream applications that we just might not have predicted at first. But you still had to have the this is a cool, fun thing that people like playing around with in the first place to drive those really fundamental advances, which I find kind of fun. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they serve they serve a good purpose to educate the market and educate users. And it's like these text to image and video models are like almost the first uh, consumerized product that machine learning has really created because by default, they're easy to understand. They're, you know, magical fit very well into this like social media world that we live in and uh, and therefore they i think invite a lot of imagination and, and positivity what i think is on the second order uh problems which is really fascinating is like if you're really good at generating text and understanding language like these systems are directly applicable to learning different kinds of languages which are kind of you know the natural biological form proteins and designing synthetic proteins that like legit don't exist in nature, but approximate or sometimes beat the features of proteins that do exist in nature that we exploit today for commercial purposes. And so the fact that that's possible is like almost mind blowing. And um, I think opens up so much ingenuity that, that we're sort of like yet to really properly exploit and kind of put the uh, pedal on the accelerator on. Yeah, that's a really fascinating application that I hadn't spent much time thinking about. And it seems like there's so much discourse around these text to image, text to video models. And 
the concerns about do they really understand what they're doing, which I think are very interesting and useful debates. Um, and I do find them just very interesting to engage in as like an intellectual exercise. But regardless of what you think is going on in the internal states of these models, as it were, to what you're you're pointing out here, just the capabilities that they demonstrate and the possible second order applications, the ramifications are really, really interesting if we look at what could possibly happen down the line with that further development. Yeah. And at least in the like scientific and kind of engineering science domains, whether that's you know, industry or biotech or, or materials or, or whatnot, it's like bringing a certain sense of like reproducibility, intentionality, and and sort of rigor with, uh, you know, discovering new solutions and considering that, you know, what the products that we have today are really those of our own intelligence and creativity and, you know, real world bits and atoms experimentation really haven't made a dent into making use of uh, like truly expressive and powerful uh, learning systems that can, um, you know, help us explore what is like a vast search space of, of like solution space basically and get to like a much better, um, you know, local optimum. So I think that's what I find is like philosophically super exciting with, yeah, the, the emergence of like, you know, machine learning systems and kind of more physical sciences, science domains. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what comes out of these fundamental developments over the next few years. I do want to spend a little bit of time on a topic we've been skirting around a little bit earlier. So your, your co-writer on the report, Ian Hogarth, has written a pretty influential essay on AI nationalism that I, I read quite some time ago, and it's influenced a lot of my own thinking. And in this State of AI report, you call out a couple of really interesting trends also related to our discussion over semiconductors earlier. So the U.S. Chips and Science Act, the U.S. cutting China off from NVIDIA and AMD chips. I, I recently spoke to somebody who does a lot of analysis on China's AI governance, and there's a lot of interesting discourse in that space just about how much of a chokehold the U.S. is trying to put on China with these recent restrictions. And I previously didn't realize just how serious what the Biden administration is trying to do is. I'm I'm curious what your perspective is just on this, I guess we could call it semiconductor nationalism almost in terms of trying to force China into a corner in terms of having very few options of what to do in terms of advanced semiconductors and then the U.S. really trying to pull a bunch of money into its own space as well. Yeah, I think it's going to be um, an experiment of w- which nation can build up its capabilities faster. And, uh, you know, of the kind of data points that we pulled out in the report, like the West certainly has like an uphill uh, challenge because, you know, the number of you know, new greenfield um, fab projects that have been launched far, far smaller in the West than in China. The amount of time that is taken from breaking ground to having these things run is far slower in the West than in China and is not really inverting. And also like China has the advantage 
of having this like explicit policy around like civil military fusion, you know, where it really considers that, uh, you know, investing in these domains is existential basically to, to the state. Of course, like in the U.S., we're starting to take it pretty seriously too with, the, with these acts, et cetera. But, you know, I think money can take you so far. You really need to have the expertise and, uh, and like the industrialization strength and agility to, to sort of achieve these goals. So I think it's, it's important, but I, I don't, I guess I, I don't know if it's going to be a question of like a single digit number of years or like 10 plus years to really get to, to sovereignty, especially as if these things escalate. I mean, there's some very serious like geopolitical you know, implications that are, that are on the table. And then we're not even talking about Europe and, and sort of its attempts in some degree of like getting to chip sovereignty. And I think that's, that's even less likely. Let's spend a little bit of time on Europe, actually, because I do feel like a lot of the discourse around AI sovereignty, geopolitical tensions, a lot of it, I think the US and, and China are really the heavyweights throwing their weight around. Of course, the UK has been a bit of a leader in regulation recently, and I want to talk about that too. But what's your take on why they're lagging behind a little bit? I mean, I think it's part of the basics, which is, you know, Europe is not one market. Um, it sort of was close to being one market and then ceased to be, um, you know, different nations have different priorities. They have sometimes trouble working together. The political landscape has ebbed and flowed like very quickly. So it's very hard to make long-term bets. You know, some uh, administrations were better or worse in, in, in that regard. Um, whereas, you know, the U.S. and China benefit from massive single markets and a lot of cohesion in that, in that regard. And, um, and in some ways, at least in the U.K., sort of like their economy is like largely driven on professional services and sort of brain power kind of stuff and less about... Uh, you know, an industrial base, which has been declining over the years, and the country's invested far less in R&D than some of its peers compared to its GDP. And, you know, since Brexit has had uh, you know, a number of challenges, even though there are some potential opportunities that it has to, you know, set its own fate in that regard. So it's sort of two, two-sided coin in that regard. And then, and then to some degree, I think the continent, um, you know, still suffers from, but far less like this talent exodus to the U.S. where it was perceived that the only place you could, you know, build a massive company in whatever domain you were working on was in the U.S. And to some degree, it's still still true, but um, certainly a lot less. And, you know, there are many examples of, you know, large, um, you know, international scale companies that have been built in, in Europe. You know, the chip space, of course, ARM stands out. But yeah, there's so many fires that are <laughs> that are there to, to be fought at the moment that um, it's sometimes hard to make these very long-term kind of bold R&D bets when, you know, the books don't balance today. That's fair. The last thing I'd love to get to on this year's State of AI report is your predictions for the future that you've been doing pretty much every year. And so you laid out nine predictions for the next 12 months. Two that stuck out to me were number six and seven. So six says that reality bites for semiconductor startups in the face of NVIDIA's dominance and a high-profile startup is shut down or acquired for less than 50% of its most recent valuation, which is a pretty interesting turn 
from last year's prediction. Um, could you spend maybe just a little bit of time on what specifically has changed in terms of your perspective? Um, you were commenting on this a little bit earlier, but I, I just find this a pretty interesting shift. Yeah. Um, so yeah, last year, you know, we thought that there would be a consolidation. We didn't necessarily name a price or if we did, I think we said a billion or so. I think this is like a mix of, uh, so like the, I think the lack or the maybe lackluster amount of um, positive results that new companies have had. Uh, you know, I think after whatever, five or six years or so, we would have probably hoped that there would be like a genuine competitor to NVIDIA, but uh, at least from what we can see that that hasn't really emerged when we talk to developers and ask them, what platforms are you building on today? And have you tried any new vendors? And um, yeah, and I think it's also just a function of how quickly, uh, you know, new players have invested in making their products easy to use and um, versus just the dominance of, of NVIDIA's frameworks and the fact that everybody knows how to use them. You know, a lack of sort of adoption, a very quick incumbent that operates as a startup, and then now potentially, you know, more cost pressures in big companies that mean that they're perhaps less keen to invest in CapEx, uh, you know, meta excluded, to, you know, upskill their whole uh, data center infrastructure when what they have today is probably good enough. And I guess we have, maybe lastly, we haven't yet seen like a kind of breakthrough use case in machine learning that was like uniquely enabled by uh, these new chipsets, which is sort of part of the part of the promise, really. So I would have hoped this story to be different, <laughs> for sure. Like I was uh, definitely very keen on this space, but I think it's been tough. Agreed. I, I do expect that for many of these semiconductor startups, it is going to be a pretty long game just in terms of looking at what new use cases might crop up because the sense I get, especially when we look at how many of these startups are marketing themselves, Cerebrus, for instance, they're targeting the same things that I think people are already doing. If we look at Transformers and NVIDIA at the same time with their H100, for instance, is like, we've got a Transformer core. Cerebrus comes and says, look how fast we can train a GPT model. And so I do wonder how much of this use case thing is just an artifact of the level of imagination, perhaps, that's being displayed in terms of the use cases that these companies seem to be chasing after right now. Mm -hmm. Could be. Um, I think NVIDIA, you know, had like a very intentional strategy around distributing its hardware to all the best academic labs and, you know, even creating this like NVIDIA fellowship, which was, you know, fairly coveted in academia. And, you know, that also enabled them to be at the forefront of what their chip was not good for and what they could make use of in future generations. I've sort of seen like less of the newcomers take that approach. And, uh, and then I think the other reality is perhaps like, you know, most of the very uh, kind of lucrative or, or large scale revenue opportunities in machine learning are, are still in like the hyperscaler style companies. So sort of a reflection that machine learning is still pretty early. Um, and so, you know, building a business that's predicated on you finding unique applications of 
are an already pretty unique space is uh, a too small town. Mm. Total addressable market. Sure. That makes sense to me. Another set of predictions you had that I found pretty interesting was around AGI startups. You've got a couple here. So number two says NVIDIA announces a strategic relationship with an AI-focused organization. Number five says GAFAM invests more than a billion into either an AGI or open source AI company. And then very interestingly to me, number seven, a proposal to regulate AGI labs like biosafety labs gets backing from an elected UK, US, or EU politician. So I guess we can kind of group the first two under more of the investment strategic relationship side and perhaps commenting on those together. I'm curious what you think the prospects for AGI labs look like right now and just how that how the evolution story looks to you in a little bit more detail. So I think it's, um, you know, like as Microsoft has now pretty clearly started integrating OpenAI's capabilities into its uh, solution suite and has, you know, immense distribution to like every enterprise and SME in the world. I think it's starting to become fairly clear that outputs of product focused AI labs are actually probably quite useful in enterprise. Um, and then B, that the spend that these companies have on cloud is non-de minimis. And uh, in terms of future-proofing the kinds of workloads that will be most relevant down the line, having a strategic relationship with one of these shops is beneficial. So not dissimilar to the argument of NVIDIA having a relationship with academics for that similar purpose. So that, that drives part of our thesis. And then the other one is kind of the flip side of that coin, which is if you are an independent um, AI organization, you really do have to have a compute deal or something similar to be able to be dangerous in a positive way in, in this space. So, so that's where, you know, we made a little slide documenting which large compute companies had relationships with different AGI quote unquote companies. And, um, and, you know, NVIDIA sort of sits there as a, uh, as one that doesn't, um, despite the fact that, you know, if you're on AWS, you're probably using NVIDIA. If you're on Google, you're probably using NVIDIA in addition to a TPU. So they're like the the bell of the ball, as it were. So whoever gets access to them will probably get proprietary or early access to H100s. And uh, and that's like a you know, net positive. And um, I think we've seen certain uh, rumblings about this like large investment into, you know, an AGI stock company like OpenAI quite recently. So... I think it's, it's going to happen. I I will be curious when next year's report comes out how how these few predictions pan. I I am very curious about your thoughts on a proposal to regulate AGI labs happening. First of all, perhaps what might motivate such regulation, and then second, what form that regulation might actually take. Yeah, I think so. One of the motivations behind this one is if you look at bio-level uh, safety labs, which you know I, I've done experiments in, for example, if you work on viruses and you know you want to introduce a gene into a cell, you're working with a 
sort of a uh, a less like virulent or nasty form of HIV, basically to <clears throat> to uh, insert genetic material into a host cell. And you can't do that in the same kinds of labs than you would do regular cell culture because it has some it has some hazard attributed to it. And therefore you have to file you know documentation about what kinds of experiments you're doing, what are the viruses that you're working in working with and uh, and get approval for that and then also wear specific equipment and things like this depending on the degree to which you know the hazard exists. And um, you know contrasting that to, uh, experiments in computer science where, you know, in theory, you could run experiments on your laptop to generate a computer virus, and you can do that well, wherever you have power and internet, basically. And I think researchers at Microsoft showed like a year ago that they could evolve some malware that was like particularly nasty just on a machine. And so it sort of is an interesting contrast to consider. You can do gain-of-function experiments on a computer, but you can't do gain of function experiments uh, in biological systems in the open. Mm. And does that make sense? Does it not make sense? Does it warrant some uh, some form of, uh, of uh, you know, additional kind of investigation to see if certain types of workloads should be, should be regulated in ways that are similar to bio-level safety labs? Probably. So that's, that's like the sort of background thesis to this. I, I could certainly see that that motivation and just imagining what that what form that regulation might take. I do wonder if you've just put any thought into into that picture. Yeah, I mean, w- one way could be, you know, in the in the U.S., like if you work on certain um, you know problems of national security, you know, with the DoD or certain like three letter agencies. Uh, you can't do that on like a public internet connection. You can't do that on a private internet connection. Mm. Uh, you know, you have to have top security clearance and there's, uh, you know, a significant amount of legwork that you need to do to, to get that, to gain access to the data. You have to work in like a fully airtight facility, log like who works on this, get a certain number of seats, et cetera. So the it could actually, exactly, yeah. It could, it could pan out to be somewhat related but I think the the harder question is like, where does the line get drawn? Like, what are the kinds of workloads that would um, would need to be governed in this way versus versus not? And I don't necessarily have like a good answer on that one just yet. That line drawing question does seem to be a difficult one for AI regulation in general, and so I, I suspect it's going to take a while for all of us to develop a picture. Yeah, exactly. And I think there was. <laughs> There were some memes on Twitter when when various like machine learning related regulation would come out in Europe, or at least probably proposals for that, where it was like, "Are you gonna regulate like matrix multiplication or something like this?" It was like, "How long is a piece of string in that regard?" <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I I think as a place to close on all of this, you have written the State of AI report for a few years now. And I'd love to hear perhaps the through line for you in terms of insights you've gathered and potentially any wisdom you could pass on to founders who are hoping to build AI companies, to other investors interested in AI, 
perhaps to AI researchers as well, um, balancing their own work and trying to figure out how to make the most impact? I think the TLDR across probably all of those spaces is like specialism wins over generalism. Like on the on the investor side, this space moves way too fast. It's hard to predict. There's a lot of noise. And so I just find it hard to to see how if you don't obsess over this and um, what's possible and what's not and who's doing what strategic move, how you can actually pick out potentially like, you know, outsized winners. From a founder point of view, I think specialism wins over journalism because if you want to build a company, most likely is that you're not going to do that through solving AGI. Certainly some some people, um, you know, will work on this and those are warranted, but the vast majority of founders will like obsessively specialize over a domain over an industry and just like understand the customer value to the extent that they can be really pragmatic with what techniques and approaches they use to deliver customer value. It's, it's very unlikely that you'll be, you know, applying your, you know, your Neurips like best paper method into a paper, into like a product. If you do, then that's fantastic. And like, well done, but the majority of the cases, uh, it's going to be something probably a bit more like well-established and less state-of-the-art that will make the most customer value. And then on the researcher side, again, I think specialism is better over journalism because it's like, you got to find a domain that's like properly orthogonal from like big tech or, or big AGI labs or research collectives to, um, to really like leave a mark, I think, um, without obviously wanting to, to pretend like I know everything, but it certainly strikes me that <laughs> academia is like the place to have independent thought. And that's where you can really like express your, your specialism and really like, you know, put, put baby steps towards generating a radically new paradigm. Yeah. I do think that's really salient advice for all those groups. Well, Nathan, I want to thank you just for everything you've done for the community working on the state of AI report. I think that I, and and many of the listeners really get a lot out of out of what you're doing and i also want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me today this was a really wonderful conversation yeah thanks a lot it means a lot to have your support and thanks for having me on and that is a wrap my friends as i mentioned at the start of the episode you can subscribe to the gradient on substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.